sleeps, pal. Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, a training partner that demystifies fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. On the show this week, we've got Mike Cavanaugh. Hi, I'm Mike Cavanaugh. I'm the managing partner of Regiment Alpha. Sharing his story on his life experience to date that led to the formation of Regiment Alpha, a Chicago-based early-stage venture fund investing in seed to Series A fintech startups. In this chat, we get into Mike's lessons learned in the open outcry commodity trading pits, his multiple entrepreneurial ventures, having things thrown at him for saying the words crypto or blockchain about five or six years ago, stories from advising and helping to raise investment for startups, and all about the Cheddar Curtain, all right here on Money Never Sleeps. Listen, with a name like Kavanaugh, you got to have some Irish roots, right? Yeah. Funny, Owen and I were, were talking about that. One of my cousins did the Ancestry 23 or 23 and Me, and it turns out we're from the northern highlands of Spain. Really? Uh, the Basque region is what, you know, why we don't talk to my cousin anymore, and we still protect her from <laughs> Irish ancestry with the last name Kavanaugh. Okay. Probably just it's generally given. accepted. I can, so. I can see the swarthy Spanish in you. Yeah, well, it's the mustache. It's the mustache. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I know. Well, there is that history of the Basques, I think, taking their Spanish armada up to Galway. I'm probably botching history right there, but that might have been <laughs> no, I think you nailed it. I think that's it. Yeah. So uh, Galway is a great place. Have you been over to Ireland? I have. I need to get over there um, looking for an excuse. My dad has been a couple times. I just, I haven't had the chance to get over there yet. Okay. Well, when all of this mess is over, we uh, we welcome you here with open arms. So, but listen, awesome. we, best way to get started tonight is to just have you walk us through your backstory, which when you and I first talked back in November, I definitely built up an impression of you. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out over this conversation tonight. Okay. So maybe just weaving through the experience in the open outcry trading pits in the Chicago board of trade through your different entrepreneurial ventures, right up to the start of FinTech Ranger in 2017. Yeah, let's do it. So from Wisconsin originally, which we'll, we'll touch on, which we call the cheddar curtain here in Illinois. The reason I ended up in finance was there was no Green Bay Board of Trade, essentially. So when I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, I got a job at the Board of Trade as a clerk for a prominent local in the Wheat Pit and worked with him for about a year and a half. And then he backed me and helped me pay for a seat. And I started trading in the late 90s and got introduced to the trading world at an interesting inflection point where technology was really starting to heavily integrate into the exchanges. Now, being a 24-year-old kid that was being backed by a prominent trader, you don't think when it's happening, like, it's going to go away. And, you know, my friends that graduated college on the high level, you know, guys were making seventy-five dollars to $80,000 a year as lawyers or, you know, pre-med guys. Like, that was, like, the most you heard anybody making. And most of my friends that started at entry levels were making twenty-four dollars to 30000 bucks a year. So if you could make anything more than that, like amazing. In commodity trading, obviously, you can make that on the open at 9.30 in the morning. 
Oh yeah. Um, if you, if you're on the good side of a of an opening trade, so I missed all the signals that you can see of a rapid changing industry, which became you know, the word fintech, I guess, you know, over the years. So I left the floor shortly after the exchanges introduced side-by-side electronic trading because it was just getting like completely flipped upside down. And I joined a startup called My Futures Online. And while I was there, we learned that we weren't really creating a new company or a new market. We were converting people that used to call their orders into the brokers on the floor to point-and-click traders. Conversion happened. When the conversion was done, the company stopped growing. It got sold. And I'm like, dude, what just happened there? Like, this was fun. We were growing a company. And like, at the same time, just down the hall, there was a company called Options Express. And they were doing the same thing, like converting people that were used to like calling in orders to their brokers to point and clicking. The difference was they created a whole new marketplace. They created awareness around equity options and they brought those equity options online and they were teaching stock traders how to understand options and derivatives and that company in the 12 years that they were around they went from zero to a billion dollar exit charles schwab bought them in 2012 and i got to see a lot of how that happened i did a lot of work with both their professional and retail divisions throughout the course of the years got to know their investors, got to know their founders, and and really can't say enough good things about that whole ecosystem from the family offices that backed them to the VCs that backed them to every person that was involved in that company. Just unbelievable learning experience. And when they got purchased, my company at the time was called Know Your Options. And we white labeled Options Express's technology. They held my licenses and they custodized all of our customer accounts. When they got bought by Schwab, Schwab didn't really want to take over their professional business. So they gave us like a notice that they weren't going to be doing it. So we moved all of our clients to TD Ameritrade and we changed the name of the company from Know Your Options. Legally, I think it's actually still called Know Your Options, but we changed it to RCM, Reliance Capital Markets. So that that opened my eyes to so many different things. We went from a small, niche, viewed as risky business. Like you put the name options in your business. You've just cut out 90% of your sales and marketing reach because nobody will even look at you because they think options are risky. doesn't matter. We should have named the company, please don't open an account with us or please don't take our phone calls. Like people are like, ah. So we learned right away. As soon as we switched from Know Your Options to RCM, we changed nothing else. We didn't change any of the management strategies. We didn't change any of how we manage the money. We changed from Know Your Options to RCM and boop. Like it just, the AUM just poured in. It just, it just came pouring in. So I'm actually, I sold my ownership stake in RCM last June. Still great, amazing people at RCM. I talk to them probably every week. I still talk with my former partners there. I started getting into like alts, like super alternative, non-traditional alts, because I saw the marketplace changing from people investing in traditional assets to non-traditional things that, you know, people weren't thinking about 10 years ago, but now they're they're thinking about them like digital assets. I'll get into that in a minute, but just finishing the thought with that transition from Know Your Options to RCM and how RCM grew, really when FinTech Ranger started and what has now become Regiment, just compiling all of my years of experience in financial services and financial technologies, being on all sides of the market, being on the buy side as a trader, and an asset manager on a trade desk to being the sales trader for raising money for an investment firm on the sell side to being an exec to, you know, I think 
RCM's AUM got over 10 billion when I was still there. So we went from a small $20 million, you know, couple of strategies to over 10 billion in connectivity within financial services, 10 billion in AUM on, on the platforms. So like taking all of that learning experience, I went to my partners in 2016 and basically said, hey, we need to start really looking into these alts, like alt alts, not like liquid alts, but like not scorpion venom, like crazy alts, but like Bitcoin and different types of, you know, where money was moving. And money was like starting to flow into these non-traditional outlets at a faster pace as interest rates are non-existent. In some places in the world, they're actually, you have to pay your bank to hold your money, right? There's negative interest rates and the stock market's volatile right now. And a lot of people are looking at it going, you know, how can the stock market be this high? What's going on? And a lot of people don't have those answers. So we started looking at this alternative space and startups and real estate, and then that kind of morphed into cryptocurrency. And this whole time, we've kind of held on to the thought of like, hey, we've seen this progression before and different inflection points in the past. In the early 2000s, that integration of technology, you know, there's like very similar things happening in fintech and financial services right now where I get that. I, yeah, I, I get that. And and something the penny just dropped a bit in that all those years in a wealth advisor business, right, where you're thinking about the allocation of clients' money across different asset classes, right? One of those asset classes is a big chunk called alternatives, like you said, in that there's hedge funds, there's property, there's, you know, private equity, get into that private equity asset class, you've got venture capital. You know, you've got a few other things going on. And then boom, you know, in 2011, 2012, 2013, this thing called cryptocurrency starts to sneak into there, right? Was that it? Was that you were seeing that flow and that interest and that demand into that space as part of the RCM business where you're like, guys, we got to do something about this. And it was coming mostly from our clients, not asking to be in it. Imagine our network in Chicago, a lot of our clients that would hand us, you know, their retirement money for our portfolio managers to manage the assets, they were former traders. And a lot of those former traders were coming to us like, you know, the old Chicago way where they look both ways before they talk and they're like, hey, let's go in the conference room. Hey, <laughs> have you seen Bitcoin? You're like, no, man, what's Bitcoin? You know, and I started having those conversations in 2011 and 2012. One of our clients has a successful Bitcoin ATM company. And he came to me and he was like, you got to come to this meet up with me mm -hmm. for Bitcoin. And I'm like, reluctantly, you know, the voice in my head was like, you know, this is a good client. He's a friend. I'm just going to go, even though I have no idea what he's talking about. I went to the event and I was still more confused than I was before I went to the event. But then just getting absorbed into it in 2011, 2012, not as like I didn't buy tokens or coins at that point. I just started getting introduced to some businesses that were starting in the space that were clients of mine. And regretfully, I didn't act on that at that point, or we probably wouldn't even be on this podcast, right? I'd be done. The podcast, I'd have a background of palm, palm trees. Bitcoin at that time was trading at like under a hundred bucks. But that's what opened my eyes to it, is we had an original group of our clients that had left the trading world and gotten into Bitcoin. And really where it was like all the chips go in for us in digital assets and blockchain is the first time I went to a conference and it wasn't the people at the event didn't have pink dyed hair and, you know, anagram names like 
vanilla gorilla or whatever. You know, there was like you started seeing people that used to like the Mike Novogratzes of the world that used to run a desk at Goldman are now in public talking about this. Or, you know, Dan Moorhead at Pantera, who was a colleague of Mike Novogratz at Goldman. When you saw the larger names leaving the bigger institutions, prop groups, exchange groups, and those people started representing themselves at conferences. That didn't start happening until like 2016, 2017. Just some interesting things that I had never seen in our space before started happening. That's what convinced me this isn't going away. That bubbles, like that bubble we saw in 2017 in Bitcoin, where it got up to like 22,000 and then it slammed back down to like 3,000. Bubbles actually validate long-term acceptance. Like there was an internet bubble. That, that didn't mean that the internet wasn't gone. It's just we got too excited. As a society in general, we got super excited about Bitcoin in 2017, and that made it bubble. But I would always argue that bubbles actually validate long-term acceptance. And if you can live through that bubble, like that's when you start gobbling it up. So we got lucky from that timing, and we started advising people to dollar cost average into crypto in 2018. We started telling people to start looking at infrastructure like don't put all your money in the coin itself. Think of the coin. Think of your typical financial services infrastructure and then identify the points within that ecosystem that are going to be needed and start investing in those companies. Start investing in the Levi's and the Wells Fargo from the gold rush in the 1840s. This is the same, but the companies look different. The infrastructure is very similar to typical and traditional financial services, but it's just got a twist that, you know, it's DeFi or decentralized finance. But those little spots, like that's what we're taking our experience over the last 20 plus years. And we're looking at those spots and we're saying, okay, there's going to be a huge winner here, right? And Absolutely. that here is cybersecurity. Like Wells Fargo is a, a household name now. They had the best safes and armed guards, right? They're, they had the best security in the 1840s. That's why they made it through because they had armed guards. Other banks didn't. The James boys got them, right? Jesse James showed up. If you didn't have an armed guard, you lost your bank. Same, same. It's just, it's all hackers in cybersecurity. So we're looking at companies like that. Regulatory technologies and financial services and fintech, we, we think there's going to be a big winner in that space or a couple of big winners. Oh, yeah. It's a whole value chain, right? Yeah, in that, Exactly. You know, if you take the whole value chain of a cryptocurrency transaction from end to end and you think about, okay, how would the traditional financial markets work as part of that value chain? Great. What's missing? What are the gaps? Okay. How do you plug in those gaps? But instead of plugging in those gaps like you do in the traditional financial markets with a service provider or an intermediary, how do you plug that in with an API, right? And who are those players, like you're saying, the Levi's, Wells Fargo, that are, that are doing all that? When you think about how the regiment, the fintech ranger, and hub marketplace businesses have evolved over the last few years, and these being the businesses that form the basis of what you're doing now with Regiment Alpha, it feels like. How did those evolve over the last few years to the point where you did decide to launch the VC business? Yeah, it's a great question. For me, it wasn't my decision. It felt like not my decision. I mean, ultimately, we're responsible for our decisions. But having been in the space for as long as I have, having been a regulated entity, I was like, ah, you know, like starting a broker dealer, guys, it's a lot of work. It's you know, it's very 
intrusive. If you've never been in a regulated company, it, it doesn't feel like capitalism and, and, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It feels like like you're being watched closely and you can't say and do the things that you want to say and do. I didn't want to start the broker dealer. I didn't want to pursue it. I mean, part of it is just financial necessity. I've got kids. They're going to have to go to college. I got to make more money. And you can't do that running a small consultancy with, you know, a couple small companies you're working with. And we don't really charge retainers as much as we just took equity positions for advisory work that we were doing with startups. So like the, the decision to get into it, is I knew how to do it. It wasn't that I wanted to necessarily do it. It just became everybody in our ecosystem, my lawyer, my accountant, everybody saying, hey, it's time. We got to do this. Look at how much money we left on the table. Like We could have done this. And I'm like, you know what? You guys are making actual solid points here. As long as you guys know, this is not easy. Like this is a like a wide moat business. It doesn't seem because it's just paperwork. You know, it's just answering questions. But a lot of people don't like the paperwork and answering the questions that go along with filling out and applying to become a broker dealer. It's a wide moat to get a broker dealer going. So that's one positive side. It's not like you can just wake up and say, hey, you know what? Let's just be a broker dealer. I think I'll go start one. You know, it's like you've got to have that experience within your team that knows how to do it and do it the right way to get it out there. I knew it was there. I knew we could do it. And I know with my experience, I could execute on it. But that desire came from pure demand. Like when I look at financial services, I've, I've always believed that the buy side pushes every side of financial services. Whoever controls the money in any capacity, what they want to do is where the rest of the market, that value chain ends up moving. And mm -hmm. we were just on that side of the value chain, seeing all this money sitting in cash, interest rates extremely low with the stock market volatility increasing near all time highs. Like people are looking, I was getting phone calls a couple of years ago where people are like, Hey, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you doing with money? They're like, you know, we're investing it in the stock and bond market. And they're like, yeah, you know, we got that. But we're like, what else? You know, like huge endowments, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, they have, you know, they have obligations long term where they have to make four or 5% a year, lock it in. And if they can't do it, where do they go? Well, you know, right now, I mean, you could argue Bitcoin is riskier than the U.S. dollar, but I could make an argument and I think hold my own in an argument that you can get paid interest on Bitcoin and have less risk than the return-free rate of risk, which used to be called the risk-free rate of return in the United States. The six-month T-bill is now the return-free rate of risk when you look at it. Totally. I can show you how to make 8% in a Bitcoin wallet versus putting money at risk in the six-month T-bill with not getting a return. Where's the actual risk there, right? And I, I know it sounds like crazy, but... I think it was like 37% of all U.S. dollars ever printed have been printed in the last year. Oh, How is that going to help, oh, you know, know. long-term? And and it's like, and, and we've seen what PayPal have done, right? They started, they built up a reserve. And once you have the reserve, the fact that you accept it for payment or that you use it for day-to-day -day business isn't that big a deal, right? And now, even if you're the Sacramento Kings in the NBA, you can get paid in Bitcoin if you so choose. Right. I just saw that in the last couple of days. That news came out. But I was just going to ask specifically on, on the Bitcoin piece, because myself and Pete have this back and forth every time we're uh, discussing it. Do you think the negative interest rate and the printing of money in the U.S. has driven the adoption more? Because, like you said, it, it, it's becoming clearly from a corporate treasury management point of view, it's becoming just an asset allocation play. 
you know, you see it with the is it MicroStrategy and some of these companies. I, I heard that guy being interviewed recently. He made a very good argument, a very legitimate argument as to why he'd put his money in Bitcoin versus putting it on deposit with a bank or whatever. And it's a, to the point you were making, I suppose, which has driven it more? Is it just a case now that the more and more people pile into it, the more it becomes accepted as opposed to there's no alternative that's going to give you that return as a, as a corporate treasurer? Yeah, all of that. I mean, when you think of financial, like just in general, anything new, the amount of time it takes to adapt, right? It, it takes a long time for a new concept or a new investment to like pan out. And it's always, all right, Pete, if this is such a good thing, or hey, Owen, if this is such a great thing, you put a hundred thousand bucks in it and let me know how it works out, right? And then if you're making money doing it, like you're not gonna run around and tell people like your close friends, like, hey, this is a great investment. I put a hundred grand in it and it's kicking out 6% a year. You should try it. Unless it's true, right? You're not gonna tell your friends you did something because you want to keep your friends. So the adoption, the fact that it hasn't gone away, like I said earlier, I think long-term, I think bubbles validate long-term acceptance, but we're right at that point now, like in the next six months, and you can rewind this and we'll listen to it six months from now. The fact that these companies are putting their balance sheet in Bitcoin, these are publicly traded companies. So with publicly traded companies, you think about this, how many big Wall Street bulge bracket firms and globally, how many tier one banks have analysts that look at these reports? They're all looking at the reports right now. And when they rip through Tesla's reports, they're going to see the fact that Tesla has a weird line item that we haven't seen on corporate balance sheets in a while. They're making money on interest. Where's that coming from? Oh, Bitcoin. And then guess what? All those analysts are going to pick up the phones and they're going to be like, hey, why isn't Ford or GM or why isn't mm. your CFO in Bitcoin? And all these CFOs are either going to get fired or they're going to pile in Bitcoin. Mark my words. I mean, that's how this works. Like, they're not going to come out of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not going to zero. They're not going to un, like, hypothecate all this interest. The people like it. People like making money. Yeah. People like yeah. making money and not having to work. And when you see a company like BlockFi, perfect example, year and a half ago, Block who, HuFi, like people haven't heard of that. I mean, these companies that have that figured out what you called earlier, and I'm going to steal it from you, the value chain within blockchain, like the people that have figured that out early, they've gone from 100 million in assets to 25 billion in assets in the fastest time period. And it's because we're all making a little money on a, on the five or 10 grand that we put into Bitcoin and we see it kicking out. And now it's elbow. Hey, Pete, check this out, right? I'll show you my app where I'm getting 5% or 6%. And you're like, dude, what? <clears throat> Spit out my beer. What's that? Well, this is what it is, right? We're right there. We're right at that point where this is just going to flush. It's, it's going to be weird. You're going to be like, how did that happen? It's like the infrastructure is being built. Not anymore. It's built. Like it can, it can absorb it now. I know. I know. I'm with you. It's, it's, it feels like it's here to stay. You know, I'd say over the last year, I've been watching it more and more and more intently than I had been. And obviously, you know, got some skin in the game there as well. And listening to conversations of people that are, the naysayers, I'm like, listen, the bulk of the time, those that are naysayers don't understand the technology and don't really understand the possibilities of it. Not even the possibilities. Saying possibilities is so 2016 because so many of the, these things are now just mainstream in digital assets. But yeah, back, back to my thought, Mike, on bringing this all together, right? In that having these businesses from 2016, 2017 forward in this space and 
having those as kind of your money makers while you kept the passion alive in the digital asset space. Is that how it evolved to the point of you then deciding to launch Regiment M? So it was kind of been, yeah, in a way. So in evolution of like when we started FinTech Ranger in 2016, the best way I describe it is I was a venture fund without a fund. Like we were coming in and helping a company like as an advisory, right? Being an adult in the room saying, hey, your tech is fantastic, but there's this little thing in the world called business. And it, it has to get done the way business people do business. You don't, you can't like walk in a room, do a mic drop, throw it, whatever, and be like, boom, like that, that doesn't exist. Like that's a, that's Ehrlich Bachman. That, that's a joke. Like that doesn't really happen in, in real life. Like you have to wear a suit when you meet with somebody and you're selling a software product to them, it has to have a licensing agreement. Like there's certain things that have to apply in business. We just didn't have a venture fund to allocate to. I didn't even, at that point, wasn't even thinking about being a venture capitalist. I was doing venture-esque work for startups as an advisor consultant. And it became an evolution. It just slowly morphed of partly frustration on my end, being like, oh, there's got to be a better way we can do this. And people would be like, you should be an investment banker. You should be a venture capitalist. You know, like suggestions from friends that I respect in the industry to once our inner circle, our attorney, our accountant, my partners started realizing like what we were doing. It just became like the, the obvious, okay, we have to do it now. Okay. Turning points. One client, because we can't get paid a success fee if we're not registered. We can't represent ourselves as an agent or a broker, make an offer and a sale. So we were hosting events where we would connect a client with potential investors that we knew invested in deals, but we didn't handle the deal. We just said, let's go to lunch. Our friend's going to present and you guys can talk about investing somewhere else. We hosted a couple lunches like that. My attorney came to one of the lunches and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, Michael, we need to be an investment bank. And I was like, whoa. And I've been working with this attorney for 15 years now. He's wow. never used the term. He's never used the term we, right? Okay. And he's never encouraged me to do anything. I'm the lunatic, right? I'm the visionary lunatic that comes up with the ideas. And, you know, I'm the one that says, hey, we should start an investment bank. And my attorney says, Michael, there's a lot to think about. You need to have a series 24, a series 27. No, he came in hot the other way. Michael, we need to start an investment bank. And I just looked at him and I'm like, I'm like, two things funny. One, you're usually the guy that's slowing me down, like in a good way, like look at all the risks. And why did you use the pronoun we in that sentence? Yeah. Like, just curious. He's like, I'm in. He's like, I've seen what you're doing with these clients. And I'm like, where did this come from? Like, he's like the client you had that luncheon for the other day. He's like, they got funded. And it was a lot of money and you left this much on the table. And I'm like, yeah, I think this is, and this was like June of 2019 when we had that lunch in, I didn't even know, like we didn't have a contract with the company. Like they paid us like a flat consulting fee. I think it was like 2,500 bucks to host a luncheon, to put them on our technology platform on the, on the hub to give them a digital deal room. And then my lawyer came back and he said, no, they got, they got funded. And I'm like, well, yeah, we're, we're not doing this the right way. We need to be a broker dealer. And that was 2019. And so you got your broker dealer license. And then what was then the transition into saying late last year, well, this is now going to become a VC business? Yeah. So I'll give you the story. Just one clarification. We had and have our Series 7 license registered with 
another broker dealer. We haven't gotten approved yet through FINRA. We have our final exam coming up in a week from today. But the evolution, so when you're raising money for companies, the first, and you'll get this right away, Owen and Pete, if you're an intermediary, you're respected, but what really is always respected if you're passing a deal around, if I said, hey, Pete, check out this new coin, it's a really good technology, you should invest. Your first question is gonna be like, all right, Cav, how much do you have in this deal, yeah. right? And if my answer is zero, it's going to be like, you're going to look at Owen and be like, who is this guy? He's trying to sell us something? Like, what's his deal? What's he going to make on this? Like, why is he telling me about this deal if he's not in it? So you have that conversation one or two times with like people you know and respect. And you're like, you don't want to go back to them with a deal that you don't have skin in the game in. So the evolution with the funds was having that conversation with prospective clients on the fundraising side where we started representing people with our Series 7 at the other broker dealer. I would go to somebody that I knew and say, hey, check out this deal. We're raising money for it. What do you think? They'll be like, well, how much do you have in it? No, no, we're representing this as a broker dealer. And they're like, yeah, I don't care. How much did you put into the deal? You're like, well, nothing. Thanks. See you later. Yeah. After a couple of those, I'm like, what if we started a couple of funds? And the premise behind the fund is like, what's my subject matter expertise? It's fintech. I've been in fintech for 20 plus years on all sides of the market. I've been in technology startups. I've seen it done it. I'm like, I'm a fintech expert. So I'll start a fintech fund. I'll find fintech companies. I'll invest in them. And if I need other investors for that company, I'll syndicate it through the broker dealer. That was the thought. So now I can go to these other places and say, hey, we'd like you to invest in this deal. Oh, great. How much are you in for? Well, our venture fund put a half a million bucks. Oh, it changes the narrative. So that was the concept behind it. And now We've got a great partner in, in Kenny at Diffuse. You know, we'll, we'll find subject matter experts that have an idea that know their industry where I couldn't possibly know, like the movie and entertainment space. I don't know anything about that, but the Regiment ecosystem partnered with Diffuse. We can start a fund if we find a subject matter expert. We can handle all the financial services aspects of it. That's what we know. And we can stand up a new fund. And then that person will have the same ability to invest and syndicate investors through the broker deal. So okay. that was the evolution of it. A, a lot of times people look at me and they're like, dude, you're nuts. If you do it the right way, the street knows what's right. It attracts more business and you want to be a broker dealer. But it's what I always say is, yeah, I'm nuts, but let's talk about the, the commercial aspect of it, once you're open and running and you're doing stuff the right way and you keep the deals, you know, in compliance in check, like we're doing it the right way. This is the right way to syndicate investors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And, and it's like, if you're going to go the lengths to get a fund set up that you're going to take these risks with investors money, right? Do a proper portfolio construction, come up with a whole allocation timeline. What's the check size? What are you looking for? What are your criteria? Go through all the due diligence. And then if you're going to then well, hey, you've got this great network of relationships, right? Built up over the last 20 plus years, like you said, you've got all these people that you could off, not offer, you've got all these people that should be interested in these deals, right? Because you know them and you know what, what you know their view of the world. And that is a grown up, responsible, professional way to get them into deals is to do it through a broker dealer, right? Is that the gist of it? You nailed it. And, you know, you can use any analogy, but it's like your grandparents say, whatever is harder is usually the right way to do it, right? If it were easy, everybody would do it. It just seems in life and business, the hardest route is generally the right route, is the most long-term successful or profitable or whatever it is. Like, 
the person that plays basketball that goes to the gym at 5 a.m. every day to practice free throw shooting for two hours a day. It's mm-hmm. hard, but there's a reason that that person becomes the one that is on the line in the NCAA championship with the second left hitting the free throws because they're a 90% free throw shooter exactly. instead of the 72% free throw shooter who just shows up and, and shoots the 20 shots a day. Whatever is harder is generally the right way. And I don't think it's any different in the financial services world. This was not easy getting this set up. It was a long time, especially like the COVID lockdown in many ways, long term, it'll it'll benefit our ecosystem because it sped things up. But when it happened, like we had just launched Regiment. I had just opened the bank account for the venture capital fund and started making phone calls. Hey, I'm a first time venture capitalist. Would you like to invest in our fund? And they're like, one, if you were like Mark Andreessen right now, we don't know if we'd fund you because have you turned the TV on? Have you seen yeah. the stock market dip 38%? Have you seen any? Are you really calling us asking for money for a fund for a first time manager? Like that happens in normal times, let alone the last year. So it was not easy. But anytime I thought about quitting or any like, entertained thought about, wow, this is messed up. Like anytime that happened, I've like, I've been through this before. Maybe not exactly the same, but my first day trading at the board of trade was in August of 1998 in the bond room when long-term capital was unwinding. I I mean, I look at back at that and like you watch a 55 year old man when you're 24 years old, completely fall over, hit the deck and like looks dead, passed out, fainted because they just lost everything. When a market goes limit up, limit down in like three seconds. Like that was my first day of trading. I'm like, why is that guy laying on the floor? And the guy standing next to me, he's like, he's dead. And I'm like, no, dude. And he's like, he wants to be dead. And you're like, that was my first hour. That was my first hour in trading. Wow. Like was long-term capital when, but it went, Whoop, whoop, just like that. And if you got caught on the wrong side of it, there was no liquidity. There was no in or out. But my way of saying there were times last year when we were having conversations that they weren't making any sense where people are like, I don't know if I'll ever invest in anything ever again, let alone a first time fintech venture capitalist. You know, it was like, ah, why are we doing this? But then, you know, we stuck through it knowing, you know, I could ramble on stories about what I've seen in financial services. And like, this was actually to me, didn't seem as rough. I can still remember how bad 2008 was and how long I stayed in the office every day managing our clients' portfolios. When that was all done, I remember I was on the phone one day in 2010, May of 2010. I was on the phone with the guy. And he's like, well, what if we get into this and 2008 happens again? I'm like, mark my word. That was a once-in-a-lifetime event. We'll never see another thing that mirrors the amount of leverage for at least 20, 25 years. As I was saying that, I look up to the Bloomberg and the S&P's down a thousand points. I literally, I felt all the color from my face, leave my face. The guy on the phone with me, his name was Paul. I'm like, uh, blah, blah. I'm like, Paul, can I, can I, can I call you back? And I hung up. I took off, literally, I was wearing like a long sleeve shirt and a suit coat. I took off the long sleeve shirt, took off the suit shirt and was just in my t-shirt, just profusely sweating. I crawled under my desk shaking. Like, what <laughs> is happening? I'm like, in my mind, the only thing that could have been happened is a nuclear bomb hit one of the seas, like one of the coasts. Like that's the only thing in my mind that could have happened. It was the flash crash. Awesome. It was the flash crash day. I was on the phone with a client saying this, you'll never see another move like that in the S&P like we saw in 2008 in our lifetimes. And boom, as I said it, I'm like, I'm like, how, how, whoever's listening to my conversations, how did that happen right when I said that? And I literally 
crawled under my desk for like yeah. 20 minutes just to connect. I'm like, this is messed up. Like, what is happening? You've got that special something, Mike. It's definitely there. It's definitely there. <laughs> this episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, demystifying fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. Pat Fintech enable financial services professionals to transform their capabilities into the digital age with dedicated virtual training programs geared towards those that can develop, deliver, and monitor optimally customized user experiences balanced by appropriate governance, control, and oversight. To learn more about Pat Fintech, go to moneyneversleeps.ie slash P-A-T Fintech. Looking at the business today, right? Can you share the thesis in a nutshell and perhaps the state of the union? Yeah, absolutely. So the thesis is taking those that past 20 years, those inflection points and watching those happen. You, you moved from the open outcry world to that game hasn't changed, right? The stock market and the futures market, the game hasn't changed. There's never been any edge outside of information, legal informational edge is the only edge that exists. Everything else is BS. You can't time the market. You can't use leverage for your long-term benefit. If there's two sides to leverage, like the only benefit is informational edge. Like you having information legally before somebody else and being able to act on that. So knowing that and seeing those different points, that's where we're looking. We're looking for edge. We're looking to see who's got the edge, right? Who's actually got the real edge, right? And then what, what do they need? Like, do they need microwave towers to run from here to there? We'll invest in that. Whatever that edge is, we're trying to stay one step ahead. We don't care who has the edge now. We care about where we think the edge holder is going to be six months from now, two years from now, right? And then what is that edge? What are the 18 different things that are going to be into that company? Is it insurance, right? Is it accounting? Is it cybersecurity? Is it whatever it is, tokenomics, like what are the 20 different things that find its way into this company that runs the edge? And how do we invest in those things? This is what I love about financial services and financial technology. And I don't think it'll change. It's always fragmented. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for those things. And you know, the beautiful thing about financial services is you do not have to be first to market. You just have to be in the market long enough and not screw it up and stay compliant. To get bought, you just, you got to be in the top 25 to get purchased. And we know that because we've seen it happen. So taking that experience and really betting on that fragmentation won't change. Even DeFi stuff, I, I think fragmentation will still be there. And that's kind of the thesis. We want to be in that value chain, investing in the things where the alpha is going. So there's no question in our yeah. mind the alpha is going to DeFi. Yeah. I, and and I, we, we had on the podcast this guy, Barry Darmody, from an Irish business called Search for Less. And what they're doing is they are filling in digitally all of these big analog gaps in the way that people search for company information when they're doing things from a, a, a legal search perspective, from um, a due diligence perspective, anything where you have to access public records of company information. There's so many hoops you have to jump through in order to get that digitally. So their whole idea was, listen, let's just nail this and nail this digitally. And we're going to do everything we have to do to nail it digitally. How about we all just look at the entire financial services market that way, right? That's kind of the challenge I'm laying out for all of us here, which is big smile on my face is where I, 
you know, this is a lot of fun. Thinking about, just tell us where the business is today. Is your is your fund raised? Are you investing yet? Where are you? We are what I call warehousing some deals. So we've got interest from a couple of anchor investors that would write a first check for a first close. And we're essentially showing them companies that we've been involved with in the past year to get a first close. So we're very close to our first close. We're going to open it up to everyone after we do the first close. As long as you stick with it and you keep swinging, like, and you know, you got to have that conviction to stick through it. Like we stuck through the crypto winter and we ran this consulting firm investing in, you know, advising startups in the blockchain and Bitcoin space. When a lot of people were turning their shoulders, was it crazy to get doors slammed on us or yelled at or things thrown at us in meetings mentioning digital assets bitcoin we started shying away from saying that too like early days 2016 2017 you said blockchain door slam stapler at your head like we survived through that and had the conviction to get through that and really believe in this space and that's the kind of conviction it took to where now people are calling us saying hey we heard you're involved in this and they're beating us up and chewing our arms off to get looks at the projects that we've had because we've been doing it long enough. And then people remember you. So we had a company last year. I don't think anybody that we introduced the company to invested in them, but all the people we introduced to them remembered it was us that said, hey, here's what's going to happen. A company a year ago doing $60,000 a month in transaction volume, now doing $65 million a month in transaction volume in one year. And we were the introducer. We brought this to all the banks, all the prop groups, everybody, and said, this is the next play. We got up in front and said, here's what's going to happen. And all of that happened. So now people are like, hey, you know, these guys might be onto something. We had to have the conviction to say those things were going to happen. The company did it. They get all the credit. But it's little stories like that and those events happening now that people are like, hey, let's talk to these guys. So. Well, that's it. When you got a vision, you got to stick with it. You know, I always jokingly say there's only two outcomes when you start something, you'll succeed or quit, whichever comes first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you got the vision, you got the perseverance, you got the, you got the moxie, right? You just keep moving, you keep pushing and you get there. Yep. Speaking of moxie and kind of what it takes, right? To do this. I know that you're a big believer in leveraging all your human capital right? As a startup, as a founder, as a business and getting people involved, right? What were some of the lessons learned for you in terms of advising and coaching founders really through the years to get them into a position to succeed? The best lesson, and I'll share this with everyone, is it's kind of like a sports analogy. Like talent can only take you so far. Like there's talent out there everywhere, right? We have one hard and fast rule that's Super simple, but I'll tell any company this, any founding company, like the most important thing for success in a company are the people that you interact with, not just your employees, your clients, everybody. Like one a-hole can screw things up for a long time. So we have a very hard and fast no a-hole rule. I don't think there's anything more important than that. And I've been on both sides, good companies with good exits, bad companies with bad exits. And when you look at what the correlation, it all came down to people every time. Venture, it's interesting because you need a marketplace, you need a growing, huge, addressable market. But we look at both. Like you got to have that big market, but your team and that team's culture, especially the leader of that team is the most important thing 
we live for success. I'm with you. I'm with you. No, and you'd said that to me before, the no a-hole rule. That is big. What, what I've found is that, you know, just always have that one version of the truth. And if you're honest and you're transparent, one, you only have to remember one story. Two, you just breathe the credibility over the years, you know, and it just stays with you and it, it pays back big dividends for you, you know? Absolutely. I think that's the number one rule. Like really it's, it's about people and that, you know, great people build great teams, great teams build great cultures and great cultures build great companies. Awesome. Now listen, that's for it, Irish on. listeners, can you tell us what is the Cheddar Curtain? The Cheddar Curtain is Wisconsin. So I don't, I don't even think Wisconsin's the largest cheese producing state. It's just called the dairy state. So a few years back, the football team, the Green Bay Packers started making these foam cheese heads. Cheese heads. Yeah. And so we're called cheese heads. If I could tell you how many times somebody's called me a cheese head, I'd probably be able to retire if I got a nickel each time. Yes. But it's just just a funny way of, you know, behind the cheddar curtain. Living in Illinois, the Bears and Packers are a rivalry. Like, I get a lot of crap from Bears fans. So, you know, they're always like, go back to Wisconsin. And we have some choice words for, for them when you're behind the cheddar curtain. But I'm just a big fan of everything, you know, where I grew up everything Wisconsin. And I've had fun with it in the past 20 years. You can imagine the the spirit of conversations I would have had in the past and on the floor of the Board of Trade, surrounded by Bears fans. You, you had to go the other way with it. So I would wear the green coat and bring cheese slices to work during the two times during the year when the Bears played the Packers. So you had to own it and put it out front or you'd get chewed up alive in the, in the pit. But yeah, Cheddar Curtain is just a, a reference to that all things behind the state line of Wisconsin. I gotcha. I gotcha. See, I, I grew up, you know, outside of Boston. I didn't even know what the cheddar curtain was. I knew it had something to do with cheese. I knew it had probably something to do with the Green Bay Packers. I mean, when you look at the professional sports teams in Wisconsin, they're all named after like the favorite pastimes in Wisconsin. So you've got meat with the Green Bay Packers. They were meat packers. So that's encased meat, like summer sausage and venison sausage. Like, that's what you eat. Like then you've got the brewers, that's beer, right? So you got meat and beer. You got your base is covered. You're gonna be sitting there. And what do you do when you're drinking beer and eating meat? You hunt deer. Like, and that's the <laughs> Milwaukee Bucks. So you got like deer hunting. Like growing up, we did not get spring break. Like all my friends from other parts of the country are shocked. Like we got a half a day on Good Friday. Like the buses came early and you got out of school a half day on Good Friday. We got the entire third week of November off. And people are like, why would you want to take off in November? Like deer hunting. Like <laughs> that was the week everybody went of deer course. hunting. So we didn't we didn't get spring break. We got the entire third week and nobody went anywhere. There was no spring break. You know, you go to Mexico, you go somewhere in Florida, you go somewhere nice where it's warm to get. No, we stayed in the cold and went deer hunting for that week. That was our spring break was in November, deer hunting. So you got meat, cheese, and deer hunting, Packers, Brewers, and Bucks. Like, Wisconsin's pretty pretty funny that way. Okay. Now that is truly unforgettable (laughs) and truly the definition of the cheddar curtain. We're at that point in time with our podcast where Owen likes to ask his final famous question. Owen Fitzgerald, would you like to do the honors, please? Yes, I do. Actually, it's it's going to be hard to top that particular piece of information about the cheddar curtain there. That was brilliant. (laughs) Mike, t- tell us something that people wouldn't expect to know about you. Yeah, it's a great question. There's probably a couple, but, you know, when you're younger, you're more flexible, agile. Like, people today can't believe that at one point in my life, I could actually barefoot water ski. 
I was on a, on a water ski team growing up in Wisconsin. Again, you don't associate Wisconsin with water skiing, no. but there's a lot of water ski teams in Wisconsin. So I was a Crivet Ski Cat was the name of my team, and I could barefoot water ski. I wasn't that good, but I could do it. So wow. a lot of people, yeah, don't know that about me. Wow. Yeah. Just do me a favor and Google Wisconsin water ski shows. I think Wisconsin has the most water ski show teams of any other place, maybe in the world. Like you would associate like maybe Florida, Arizona. Nope. Wisconsin, again, another cheddar curtain back. We're locked inside for three months of the year, hibernating because it's so cold. So when we get outside, we're like, let's go water skiing. Like, <laughs> of course. And let's create a show around it. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I know you should have seen it hit, it hit 13 degrees or 14 degrees Celsius in Dublin over the weekend. And you know, the shorts, the strappy tops all come out and it's like, it's really not that warm out, but it's like, you've been wearing these big, exactly. (laughs) You're wearing these big woolen jumpers for like, you know, three, four months in a row. It's like, okay, just, just let's go, you know, cool. Well, listen, Mike, Cavi, as you are referred to in your circles. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and I think really uh, I learned way more about you than I ever thought I would in one hour. So thank you. Yeah, I should apologize for that. No, thank you guys. This was awesome. Owen, Pete, hope to uh, talk to you guys soon in the future. Thanks for having me on. This was great. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Yep, we'll see you guys. All right. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Mike for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. Links are on our website at moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online and subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm the founding partner at Norio Ventures, and I'm an early stage startup advisor and investor focused on fintech and digital assets. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a voicemail on moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!